Hello everyone and welcome to SciDish, an IFT podcast that mixes up perspectives from multiple disciplines related to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. This episode, our focus is on staying well and nourished during the biggest global pandemic of our lifetimes, COVID-19, and how the food industry can be part of the solution. Let's welcome our first guest to our show, Julie Meyer, who is a registered dietitian, an entrepreneur, a past chair of IFT Nutrition Division, and a founding partner of Eat Well Global, a company whose mission is about empowering global change agents in food and nutrition. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Bruce. I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to have you on the show. We'd also like to welcome our second guest to the show, Tim Goulet, who is a PhD in food science from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and is a current lab manager at Anheuser-Busch. He's worked on numerous projects from spaceflight foods, amazing, to the gut microbiota, to winemaking. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks so much, Bruce. Good to be here. So I'd like to start by asking both of you to tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to ignite change in this food industry and particularly in the area of nutrition. Hey, Julie, how about you start? Great. Thanks so much. Yeah. So I am I'm the founder and the co-CEO of Eat Well Global, and we are a communications and consulting firm working in the nutrition space. Um, and as you mentioned, Bruce, on a mission to empower global change agents in food and nutrition. Um, my background, actually, I'd started off in communications first, uh, and I happened to land my first job working on the Quaker account um, and learned quite a bit about uh, about nutrition because the project was actually helping to um, support the communication around the first FDA food-specific health claim on a tube of oatmeal saying it lowered cholesterol. And I just fell in love with the idea that the food industry really is a change agent in nutrition and the opportunity as a communicator, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a researcher, I'm not a product developer um, like Tim, but I'm a good talker. So I'm thrilled uh, to have the opportunity to support uh, by helping really tell the stories around these products for the food industry. And then at the same time, really encouraging them to also, um, you know, create healthier foods as well. So one of the other areas uh, that we work in and who we also see global change agents are um, credentialed health professionals, which I know are quite a few of the nutrition division members over at IFT. So those are registered dietitians, as well as nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and, um, you know, MDs. Um, and really helping empower them with great communication so that they can carry the message about nutrition to their patients as well. That's fantastic. And and it must have been a lot of fun working with Quaker on that oat claim because that was uh, quite a breakthrough claim at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how challenging that was? Well, Bruce, it was so great that you used the word challenging because one of the most fun initiatives to come out of that was actually the Smart Heart Challenge. Um, for those of us who are old enough to remember the commercials, there was actually a town in Lafayette, in Colorado called Lafayette, Colorado, the Quaker adopted. And we had the nice folks of Lafayette, Colorado eating oatmeal every day for 30 days to see if it lowered their cholesterol. Um, and it did. So it's exactly that. It was, it was a really cool um, opportunity to see you know, everything starting all the way from the science, um, you know, it was 30 years of science that had built upon that claim to the marketing of the claim um, and obviously everything on the FDA um, side to have it on the package and then to see it in real life with consumers, um, you know, kind of putting the rubber to the road and practicing it and actually lowering their cholesterol as well. So um, 
and you know, I was 22 years old. I actually got to live in Lafayette, Colorado for, um, for quite some time. And um, it was just a ball. Uh, and again, and I also had an opportunity there to work with a lot of other registered dietitians. Um, and that really inspired me to go back to school to become a dietitian myself. That's amazing. You take a whole town and you convert them to a, uh, a new, completely different way of eating than uh, what they've been used to in the past. That's that that really talks to uh, change from a completely different perspective. And it's so fun and full circle because now we actually work with the folks at PepsiCo um, on Quaker again. All these, I think it's 20, oh gosh, to date myself, 24, 20, 25 years later. And it's nice now I have the opportunity to work with them um, with my own organization. So it feels really special to have the the full circle, first full circle-ness of it. And I still eat my oatmeal every day. That's amazing. So, so Tim, how about you? Uh, what what inspired you to get into this industry and work in this area? Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, what an act to follow, though, huh? <laughs> yeah, um, sure is. So, yeah, I'm not necessarily <laughs> not necessarily the best communicator, but I, you know, I'm a tremendous nerd at the very least. You know, my my formal education brought me around to really appreciate that. You know, some of the assumptions we make about food, nutritional content, and stability are not necessarily true or only maybe partially true. So I was able to see firsthand uh, in my research looking at, you know, wine chemistry and nutritional stability and space flight foods that, you know, you could put something in the right storage conditions, you can produce it the right way, but there's no guarantee that that, you know, those nutrients are going to stick around for the ride. So, you know, I got an appreciation for how kind of tenuous these systems are, these, these, these food products. And, you know, just really wanted to figure out ways to maximize the nutritional content and keep it there for longer. Awesome. So, so I'd like to hear from both of you about how your perspective on the food system and the role of nutrition science has shifted in response to the COVID-19 pan- pandemic. So, um, Julie, would you like to lead us off again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has been such a fascinating time for us because we, we're in our just heading into our ninth year. So we've had about, you know, at that point, about seven years of, you know, slowly, slowly, but surely plodding along, growing our business. Um, And then within the last year, we saw just a huge shift because companies were doing a few things. One, they were really um, understanding the role that nutrition plays in obviously the, you know, co- um, the cofactors for um, COVID and, uh, and, and an increased interest of consumers to be taking better care of their health. Second thing we saw is that there was a real lean into credibility. So the fact that we work with credentialed health professionals as kind of our advocates, I think really raised, there was an idea of before maybe they wanted more cool influencers and more celebs and what have you. And and then suddenly Dr. Fauci made, you know, science cool again, and folks were, uh, you know, more interested in working with credentialed health professionals. And the third thing we saw was a real shift of consciousness around health equity and large CPG companies really taking into consideration both how they're creating their products, who they're marketing it to, and then also who they partner with. So for example, we are a certified woman-owned business, and then we found a big increase in our food industry partners looking for diverse suppliers. So we saw a huge increase in, in our business in the last year, and, and just the opportunity to really service more clients and create more impact, um, and that nutrition is really rising to the top. So it's been an exciting time. We've actually also been a virtual company since day one. So uh, we, were, we were prepared, and one of my favorite new things is getting to see my clients you know, bedrooms and their, you know, their kitchens and their dogs uh, and all that as well as we've entered this this Zoom world. So that's the changes I've seen on my side. But I'd love to hear, Tim, and certainly from the alcohol industry, I'm very curious how uh, how, how that's changed. 
I think that's a, an excellent lead-in for you, Tim. How has it changed? Is, do you see it differently? Do you, you still see the Fauci effect like, uh, like Billy's referred to and, and credibility being a, a big issue? Tell us about what you think, Tim. Certainly, yeah. No, I think that all that, you know, very, very pointed. Um, in the production sense, though, which is kind of where I saw the most change happening from my perspective, was, you know, at least in the alcohol industry, what you saw a lot was kind of a shift toward um, you know, versatile manufacturing, namely of hand sanitizer. Um, so we shifted gears pretty early on, let's say in March, to produce hand sanitizer for, you know, um, sort of like first responders, people on the front line, healthcare workers. And we had to kind of change our whole sort of process and go to you know, regulatory entities and make sure everything was kind of copacetic to be able to do this, right? And what I saw is that I don't think we all really appreciated how capable we were of becoming versatile like this, but that really inspired me, right? You know, I see seeing that we're capable of, of you know, rapid innovation and change and, and doing things to this scale. It, it was amazing. And I'm, and I'm excited to see how we kind of apply these learnings from COVID just moving forward, making food more accessible and healthier and, and you know, new, new technologies and implementing those. So that's a, that's a fascinating space to be in. I mean, when, when you move into hand sanitizers, when you used to be producing beverages and, and all of a sudden the alcohol needs to be denatured, how, how did you go about making sure your lines were clean and, um, and a transition between a beverage and a hand sanitizer with denatured alcohol? How did you manage to do that transition? Yeah, sure. Thanks for that question. Well, you know, already, and this is what I mean by when I say we were already very capable of this transition, was that we we have, and you know, a lot of these larger companies have the the most rigorous uh, cleaning in place procedures and you know testing uh, frequencies, and you know we have the ability to make sure we're doing this right, and we had the brains around us to be able to tell us, yeah, this is how you want to do it, uh, this is how you want to process this, these are the the potential risks and how to mitigate those risks. So, and that's what it all came down to, right? Is that we were more capable than we thought. Um, we just had to apply ourselves to this shift and we were able to accomplish that. Yeah, that, that learning about we're more capable than we really think we are is, uh, is, is something that we could all apply to a much bigger part of our lives, is it not? Right on, yeah. yeah. So Tim, has any of your past research with spaceflight foods does any of that have the potential to be helpful in these kinds of situations where people are isolated with the global pandemic? Yeah, you know what? That's that's so important. You know, as I did mention, you know, our assumptions about nutritional content and its stability, that's something to really consider. The food that you have in the in the cabinet, if it's been a year, maybe it's not as nutritious as it was on day one, right? So freshness is a huge component. But something that I really started to think about actually is you know, the more I got to learn about what it's like to be an astronaut in, in the ISS or, or otherwise, you actually started to see that, like, due to the isolation and the anxiety that our astronauts feel, I likened it almost to, you know, kind of being locked up in your home, right? It's, it's isolating. There's this psychological element that our astronauts feel in their isolation that we kind of started to feel too. Um, and, when you talk to astronauts, they, they mention like the food for them is one of their biggest comforts and sort of sources for that psychological edge you need to accomplish your mission up there. And I thought to myself, well, that that I could I could apply that right and and think about this in terms of in terms of us, right? So just thinking about you know food, it's familiar, it's a source of comfort. 
And then also at the end of the day, you know, if you're not properly nourishing yourself or not able to nourish yourself, you're going to feel that you're going to feel that physically and you're going to feel that psychologically. So, um, I, you know, my experience dealing with astronaut food and nutrition and, and you know, an experience and speaking with them, I, I start to see, I, you know, I start to saw that, um, that, that picture, that bigger picture and, and really contextualize what they might feel. And then, you know, all the things we try to, you know, uh, mitigate for them in terms of stress, we can maybe apply to us, you know, not to, I think, fingers crossed, I think we're coming out of this thing. Um, but you know, there are going to come times where we, we need those learnings and need to apply those learnings more uh, holistically. Mm, very good. So, so Julie, you talked a little bit before about how things change for you as the pandemic evolved, but you also deal with a lot of other businesses. And so have you seen the food industry as a whole shifting business models in relation to their approach to nutrition in light of the global pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one thing that came up for, you know, for me earlier as we were having this discussion was around um, pivoting. And as you were just saying, um, you know, Tim, it's so cool to hear how you all were able to pivot. And one of our clients is also the American Egg Board. Um, and it was very, you know, uh, it was just fascinating, really, right at the beginning of the pandemic, even, you know, kind of in early March, I live in New York City. So um, going to Costco, you know, the second weekend in March, you, you know, you, you can't even imagine, you know, everything just flying off the shelves and people everywhere and um, thinking about the egg industry and how they also then had, you know, eggs at all the restaurants and the diners and everything closing so that they were able to really pivot that way to take, you know, it took a little bit of time, but, but that the egg industry was able to lobby to get their uh, food service focused on retail, um, which was, you know, I know if you bought, you know, 72 eggs, you saw that happening. So I think that was, that was a place where we saw a lot of pivoting, but I think now moving forward, Obviously, immunity is a big topic. It comes up quite often with our clients. And as you know, as researchers, um, Tim obviously is a scientist as well, like you want to make sure that you have all the right data and the research um, to be able to make any kind of claims. And immunity is always a bit of an elusive one. So uh, I think that, it's, that that's been really interesting to see, obviously, consumers interested in it and wanting to stay well. And then, then how do they pivot? But I think the, uh, the last point I want to make about this is really health equity. And I think that's something I brought up before, just in the case of, you know, diverse suppliers, um, which benefits us. But obviously, you know, the fact that that, that organizations are really thinking about how they work in health equity and how they think about making sure that their food is accessible, is affordable, um, is nutritious, is helping support our country so that we can continue to, um, you know, that we can, we can continue to get better and to get healthier. So I think, you know, on the client side, the immunity and the um, health equity has been interesting. And then again, we have been able to be ready to pivot because I think we're almost out of this, but you know, who knows what's coming around the corner. And I think we've learned um, that we can have a lot more flexibility than we thought we could. So, so you talked a little bit there about the the inequities in in various aspects of the community. So, maybe I'll ask both of you how has how do you think that COVID has impacted those communities that were already food insecure? Do do you think there's going to be more change in the prevalence of nutritional deficiencies and insufficiency, given that? Uh, uh, that there has been more inequity than maybe what we saw, saw before. And if anything, the pandemic has, has exacerbated the inequities. And, and what do you think we can do to 
remedy these kinds of inequities. So, Tim, do you want to have a, a, a crack at that first? Definitely, sure. Yeah. So I'll let Julie speak to the solution side because, <laughs> you know, uh, what, what I see is that the, the, the crisis that we suffered through definitely ballooned in terms of, you know, cases of inequities throughout, you know, the American like food system and just society in general. You had long lines stretching from food banks, a lot of food insecurity, right? That, that definitely became top of mind um, for people in the food industry. So if we go beyond that, um, I do think that there, there were remedies for this, right? You saw in some countries, in some instances, there are government-backed programs to deliver food and care packages. That wasn't just junk food, you know, healthful food. And, you know, what that led me to think about is, you know, the food system as it was in during COVID and what it can be in the future is it doesn't really have to end at the market, right? Maybe we can go beyond that and improve our distribution beyond that, not only to make you know, shore up access for nutritional food. Interesting. So, so Julie, maybe on the communication side of that, what, what do you think we can do to resolve or address some of these inequities? And do you, do you think there's something that more that we ought to be doing as, a, as an industry? Yes. Great question. I've been waiting to answer this. I'm so excited. So really what we're seeing is um, diverse voices. You know, my team is mostly made up of registered dietitians and we are registered dietitians are, I think, 91% white females. Um, you know, any industry that has a predominant, you know, something that predominant is uh, providing only one perspective. So I think something really, uh, you know, as, as, as Tim mentioned, you know, this really unearthed a lot of things that were already going on and that I think that the general population was not aware of or wasn't thinking of. Um, and now we really are. So there's a group that we've partnered with, Diversify Dietetics. If you don't know them, I highly recommend checking them out. It's an amazing group of dietitians who are really working to do exactly that, diversify the dietetics field, not just in you know hiring diverse di- dietitians, but really going all the way back to the high school level, to the college level, you know, where are, where, are, where are diverse voices not coming into this field? So there's been a huge elevation of that. And I think that's part of our responsibility to be able to elevate these diverse voices. Because what we've seen is that when people are speaking peer to peer, they're talking about heritage foods, you know, they're not saying go eat kale, they're saying go eat collard greens. They're not saying, you know, make sure you have, you know, chicken, dry chicken, or, you know, what have you, like, whatever it is that's, that that has been sort of our ingrained version of what healthy nutrition looks like. It's a very white, um, it's a very white diet. And, and that this, this we really see as a, as a huge issue and a huge opportunity because it has been um, really, you know, made made we've been made privy to it. We've seen it, and now it's it's our opportunity to do to do something about it. So, um, I'm excited to see more of our clients partnering with Diverse Voices. I'm excited to see them um, supporting this group, Diversified Dietetics, and other groups because I think that's the only way that that this is really going to change. So, completely uh, for me, a completely different way of looking at the challenge of needing more diversity, where it really what you're effectively saying is it doesn't really matter what the lack of diversity is it leads to a problem so you know let's not look at um we need to give more uh space to this group of the population we just need to give more space to the wider demographic of diversity overall it seems to be the what you're really saying Absolutely. People be people want to be able to get health information from people who understand them and people who look like them. And if we don't have that, then 
there's a huge, huge miss. Um, and I think that's a huge opportunity. So, and, you know, again, it really starts with schooling. It starts with high school. It starts with college. It's not one thing to say, okay, well, we're looking for a PhD, you know, food scientist, and we can't find anybody diverse. It's like, okay, why is that? Why don't we go back to, to, um, you know, go back and start investing in these um, diverse voices to be part of the education system and getting training from the beginning. I think our food system will be so much better off that way. So a completely different spin on the uh, the challenge, the nutritional challenges during the pandemic was the fact that we've seen a lot of evidence that people have been gaining weight in general across the sheltering at home phase. And and one study I read recently indicated there was around 36% of people that have gained weight during the pandemic. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not upset that this is just audio, just between us. <laughs> <laughs> Me kidding. neither. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> so one study indicating around 36% of people having gained weight and the average weight gain being around about 12 pounds. Do you feel that the shift in consumer behaviours towards comfort foods during this difficult time will have impact on on more metabolic disorders and obesity in the country? Food is more or less just a, a tool, in this case, in my mind, as a tool to satisfy what you might say is like ailing mental health, right? I mean, the, the, the pandemic has just been a drain on people, such a profound drain. And there's a prevailing threat that people's mental health is going to suffer. And I, you know, to that extent, I think the comfort food kind of giving into that to a degree is okay, right? Because again, speaking to what the astronauts go through, um, their only connection with back home is food. Um, and sometimes they might eat an extra portion and that might be okay, um, right? It's just dangerous when when food is the only consolation and we aren't having the more broad discussions about you know, how nutritious is this food? Is there better alternatives? And then Julie, to what you mentioned, like, you know, maybe we're too narrow sometimes about what those alternatives can be. And we, we're not speaking to familiarity and comfort for those people, but doing it in a way that's helpful. Interesting. So, so that's looking at, at the food from a completely different perspective, you know, the, the satisfied, the ailing health, mental health, so it starts to talk about what people are craving rather than what they're wanting. And, and we did see, you know, while we, as I mentioned before, did see some movement towards more nutrient-dense foods, we also saw uh, the rise of people seeking out immune-boosting foods as if that's maybe something they can gain control over what was going on around them by uh, boosting their own immune system. Do you think the food industry can find a balance between giving consumers what they crave while remaining true to carefully researched and science-backed solutions which will be more beneficial in the long run? What do you think about that, Julie? Well, that really is, was it the 60, it used to be the $64 million question, but maybe it's gone up. Maybe it's now the $3 billion question (laughs) (laughs) due to inflation. Um, that, yeah, absolutely. I think that is, that is the toughest nut um, any of our, our clients crack and consumer behavior has moved towards a more helpful, uh, you know, a more interest in helpful, but at the end of the day, taste is always king. So I think this is the biggest challenge for the food industry always is to be able to deliver healthy food that is, uh, is, you know, delicious, affordable, convenient, you know, clean label, organic. I mean, you know, you can go on and on. So I, so I think that this is really a big challenge, but I think that again, sort of the interest into health benefits and immunity while also having taste is, is critical. And then I think we are going to start to see a bounce back. I think people, 
Uh, I have a client who is just joking that, you know, she said, oh gosh, I need six weeks before I get back to the office. So whenever the office is going to open, make sure you let me know. So I have six weeks to get back into my clothes. So I think once we are starting returning to seeing people in person, you know, above the shoulders, I think people will start feeling more, you know, they will start taking, I think, better care of themselves. And then also, I know with the vaccine, a lot of folks are excited to get back to the gym or excited to, you know, go out more. And that will hopefully lead to not only improve physical health, but Tim, exactly to your point, improve mental health as well. And I think that's where people feel more comfortable um, and more interested in taking care of themselves. So I think we're getting there. I just love to see more and more innovation around health uh, with the clients as well. What do you think, Tim? How would you build on what Julie just said? I, I don't know if I could, Bruce. I, you know, I, I see the food industry. Julie could speak to this way better than I could. I just, I see the food industry. It's part of a larger equation um, that kind of relies on education and empowerment. You know, the consumer can let us know what they want, what I, you know, which I think is like accessible, healthful food that's easy to prepare, like Julie said. And we just have to put ourselves in a position or recognize that we're already in a position to kind of pass that information on to partners in the food system, political leaders, so that necessary collaboration can can happen. So looking back to the beginning of the pandemic, the amount of food waste which was generated during the initial stages were just terrible. I mean, we saw all sorts of pictures of you know, milk being dropped on paddocks to, to get rid of it and fresh produce being plowed back into the ground. And as a result of these breaks in the supply chain, um, given the fact there are people in this country, as we we already talked before, that that are starving and, and don't have enough food to eat, what do you think we can do to design a more adaptable food system and supply chain to avoid these kinds of problems that we saw in the early phases of the pandemic happening again? Tim, do you want to, to have a, a, a shot at that? Yeah. I mean, what we need to do is invest in it, right? I mean, before now, we didn't really see the need. Um, it's inefficient, you could say, to do it this way. But looking to the future as you know, food security is going to kind of be, it's going to change, right? And, and future pandemics and natural disasters are going to come through. We need to make sure that our food system is more robust and it's just going to come down to the investment. What sort of investment would you would you suggest? Well, one of the things I mean, as a as a younger person, what I what I see is that you know people my age, even not necessarily my age, are using applications that they can get food delivered to them. Right? It's it's more it's a kind of a way to informally expand that food system and get food, you know, from farm to literally your front door, right? And if and if that's something that you know some government entities actually you know, practice during the during the pandemic, some people had food delivered to their front door, not through an, an app, right? It was part of their the part of their system. It was ingrained within their system. So that's something that I would like to see, not necessarily for people that can go and get their own food at their own time. I think that's fine, but for, maybe more for those that can't. So what about you, Julie? Well, how would you build on what uh, Tim just said? Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. And I think the one thing that I feel like is shifting a bit, I know there's always, you know, this it's technology, but more on the agriculture side. I think there's been this sort of, you know, fear of um, GMOs and biotech. And I think that's starting to shift a bit because we are going to need crops that are more resilient and we're going to need to be able to use some of that technology to continue to maintain our, um, you know, practices during as climate change happens or as we face potentially another pandemic or this this being more ongoing. So again, I think a lot of that goes back to communication. I think the GMO crisis taught, you know, any communicator a good lesson about getting ahead of your story and being able to to share your solutions and have two-way dialogues earlier on. So I think technology like CRISPR we're seeing 
a fresher uh, approach and more acceptance of it. And I think that that's critical. Interesting. So you talk about the the fear of of GMOs and bio, biotech, and it 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 occurs to me that you know maybe consumer sentiment became a little bifurcated with respect to uh, anti science or pro science, and and maybe the the pandemic has kind of exacerbated some of those issues, and it raises the question. And we talked before about the Fauci effect, and maybe that increased the level of belief around science, but. Maybe um, we've got to start thinking about what role the food science com- community can play in gaining the trust of consumers. What do you think, Tim? Is there something that you think we ought to be doing as a food industry to to gain and build trust with consumers? Well, I think first off, we have to be patient. Um, to a degree, this might sound controversial, but more or less, we're we're paying for the sins of our past, right? When, when food science first came on the scene, it was sort of more of a trendy leaning science. Um, there was some well-publicized missteps, you know, egg yolks and cholesterol and all this sort of, sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, gaining trust of consumers takes time and it comes from speaking to people and their experiences, their culture. And there's probably no better way to do that by, than by like focusing uh, on them and personalizing their nutrition and, and broadening and diversifying our understanding of of food holistically, right? So again, to, to Julie's earlier point, the kale versus collard greens, like I think that's a tremendously important point. That's where you start to build that trust. Um, and I think we just got to plug away at it and and start to build our credibility in that way. So, so Julie, can you build on that, particularly given your experience in communication? How, how do we as a food industry and as scientists build trust and, and, uh, and equity with consumers? Well, so I, 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 I am also a nerd <laughs> and I nice. spent a lot of time dreaming about how to give great communication training to scientists. I, this has been sort of my, you know, I'm not a scientist, as I said, but I just have the biggest um, revere for them. And I would love to see scientists be better communicators. That would make me feel that that I think would be a game changer. If you look at who really led the conversation around GMOs, who has been leading the conversation around nutrition. It's not credentialed professionals. It's not scientists. It's celebrities. It's people with a good story to tell. And they have an ability to connect to people with their stories in a way that all my favorite scientists, who I love so much, really struggle with. So if there was a way for a group like IFT or ASN or you know an international um, scientific association to really invest in communication, storytelling, leadership, persuasive uh, arguments for scientists to be able to tell their story. Um, I think that would be incredibly valuable. Wow. Okay. So what are some of the the positive changes that you've seen in the industry as a result of COVID exposing some issues or flaws in the system? Do you think there's this things that that are good that have come out of it? How do we look to the to the silver lining of, of what we've been through over the last twelve months? Tim, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I think this was a catalyzing event. I think that we're going to see the diversification that we need, the adaptability. We're going to build that into our food system. I mean, maybe I'm speaking optimistically, but you know, I think a lot of the time uh, with large systems like this, you, you need a catalyzing event. And, and this surely was one. I don't know if you could ask for a better one. Wow. And it certainly was uh, catalyzing in uh, so many different ways. And we've already talked about uh, how some consumers reacted to this in terms of their own habits. 
Julie, what do you think? Is you've seen some positive things that have come out of uh, some of the changes that have been foisted upon us? <laughs> Absolutely, I think people have learned how to cook um, because they're <laughs> getting now. pretty bored <laughs> of their you know three dishes that they ate before when they got to you know go out for lunch and go out for dinner, and then all of a sudden you're cooking every single meal for yourself and your kids. Um, and I think families getting back in the kitchen together, I think that is a, that is a huge change. And I think the ability to connect, and I think there's a, there's going to be an incredible level of just appreciation and gratitude. I mean, I know for me, my experience has been when I even get to see a friend for a walk, it's like the most exciting thing that happens to me during the day where before, you know, I did 12 things in a day and, you know, I was kind of just much less, much more flippant about the little moments. So I think the opportunity for friends to gather in a restaurant together, have a genuine conversation, see family members, hear their stories, you know, be present with each other. I hope that though that I hope that continues that we can continue to feel um, that appreciation. I used to live in China. I lived in China from 2009 to 2011. And there's a lot of cool things about China, but one of the challenges was the um, air pollution was really bad. And I didn't see shadows for two years because the air quality was so bad, you really couldn't see shadows. And so when I came back to the States, when I see, I saw a shadow for the first time, I was so grateful. And even now it's been 10 years and I still feel grateful when I see those shadows because it makes me appreciate having clean air. So I hope people will continue to have that gratitude for, again, seeing their loved ones, being able to eat in a restaurant together, hug their friends, um, you know, share a meal, and I hope that that continues. Yeah, that some really excellent points there, and, and it goes well beyond the. Uh, I think we've all got a little tired with uh, uh, sourdough bread at, at, at home as is uh, not necessarily the silver lining that we thought it was, but missing our friends and uh, family and uh, in a relaxed environment of a of a food service uh, setting is is something that clearly is. Uh, we've missed out on and and julie you also raised the the interesting uh, observation of the the impact on the environment and to a large extent the impact's been uh, relatively positive so and one hopes that we can maintain some of some of the elements of that as as we come out of this uh, pandemic so uh, great responses from both of you and i thank you very much but before we close today are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience uh, with respect to how uh, COVID has impacted our approach to nutrition and maybe how we might, as an industry, react to that? Julie, what do you think? Let's see. I mean, I think I'm really thinking about IFT and, and you know, is there a, a role for IFT to play in this interest? You know, I think in the nutrition division, um, having been a part of it, I think there is an opportunity potentially to take uh, a leadership role around some of these positive benefits that we're talking about within um, within the food system and within the food industry. So uh, having the opportunity to be able to have you know the, the members really empowered um, to go back to their organizations and and really advocate for that. I think that would be a cool thing. I'd be excited to see in the future um, as IFT make taking a little bit more of a leadership role in that area. Very good. And Tim, what do you think? Well, if I may speak more broadly, perhaps, because again, I'm, I'm very nerdy, um, the, looking into the future as we focus more on nourishment, right, and nutrition, um, and the personalization of nutrition, I'm, I'm really excited about what's emerging around the interplay between, uh, you know, diet, the gut microbiome, personal health, mental health, 
and looking at how these things can influence kind of the remediation of disease, the effectiveness of medications. You know, I've always been interested in, in microbes and how they interface with us and how we can nourish them, not not just ourselves. And I'm just really excited for conversations going forward about nutrition and nourishment. Sounds like a whole new uh, subject that we can get ourselves deeply engaged in is uh, how we eat to feed the uh, microbiome rather than uh, eat to, uh, uh, to, to satisfy our hunger. Maybe another episode. It sounds like it. Yeah. So thank you both. Um, Julie Meyer from uh, Eat Well Global and Tim Gourlett from Anheuser-Busch. Thank you both for your time and your insights today. And thank you to our listeners. If you're enjoying SciDish, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the at IFT handle and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and LinkedIn is other ways you can engage directly with us. For more information on this subject and many other subjects, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject of your choice in the search box to gain access to tons of resource. SciDish is a production that is brought to you through the wonderful work of the staff at IFT, and I would also like to thank them for everything they're doing behind the scenes to make IFT of value for all of its members. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin, and I look forward to having you as a listener on future editions of IFT SciDish. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.